0: Hello, and welcome to episode 61 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which has an archive of over 100 interviews with various people from around the tennis world. So check that out. Go through the extensive and enjoyable backlist of 30 Love. And before you do that, We've got about an hour of tennis talk for you now. We just wrapped up the Madrid Masters slash Madrid Premier event. And the biggest result of the week was not the final, at least in my opinion. The biggest result was yet another upset of Rafael Nadal. So now three clay tournaments and three losses for Nadal. This one at the hands of Stefano Sitzipas, which to me is even more surprising than losing to Fanini or Team. And, Carl, let's just start there. You know, we were talking last week, I think it was just last week, that Sitsipas was coming off winning in Estoril. We were talking about that he was really a, a threat on clay in addition to hard court. That said, would you agree this is this, this is more of an upset than the Fanini or team losses were? Uh, not
1: sure. I, I think the big... Edge here for expecting Rafa to struggle in this match is that it was in Madrid. He this isn't his best clay setting. Whereas Barcelona and Monte Carlo, he's owned to a much greater degree. So that that part surprised me. The other thing, if we can get into the nature of the upset, is just that it, this one was much closer. I mean, he was he was pretty much dominated by Team Infonini, and in this match, he was he was very much in it. Uh, to the end, and in some measures outplayed Sitsipas. So I guess in those two ways, I'm I'm less surprised. But certainly, you know, this is not someone who's beaten him multiple times on clay coming into the season or ever. So yeah, pretty surprising.
0: Yeah, you point out that it was a really close match. I. I think I have the number right, that Sitsipas won six fewer points than Nadal. So this is what we sometimes term a lottery match, with total points won under 50%, dominance ratio under one, so Sitsipas won a lower percentage of return points than Nadal did. I'm not sure how much to read into that in this case, because Sitsipas was really bad, and or Nadal was really good for the last four games of the second set. If you take that out, then it's still a close match. But apart from those four games, Sitsipas wasn't playing somebody like, like somebody who lucked into a victory. I think it was a little bit tilted in his favor. Uh, but imagine, had, let's consider two hypotheticals. One is that this same matchup is in Rome. Uh, on a slower clay surface, do you think Sitsipas has a chance of pulling off the same upset?
1: Yeah, maybe 18%.
0: 18% That's pretty low. I mean, what, what would, what's the corresponding number for Madrid, now that we have seen it happen in Madrid?
1: I'm going to not, not be a dick and say 100%. Um, you mean for him to, like, do it again if they, if they were like, never mind, let's replay this match?
0: Yeah, let's say that. Um, probably high 30s. Okay, so you think that Madrid basically doubled his chance, Tsitsipas' chances of pulling off the upset compared to a slow clay surface.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I haven't seen the numbers. I did see enough matches in Madrid though to think this this was even for Madrid maybe a fast year. But yeah, I mean, we we've seen lots of results in Madrid that haven't lined up with the rest of the clay season, and, and players who have thrived there much more than elsewhere. So um, that's my that's my intuition.
0: It's interesting. I I think that that intuition is pretty widely shared and for good reason. With the altitude in Madrid changing some of the results there. On the other hand, I saw an interesting tweet this morning. I, Now that I'm thinking about it, I can't cite it. I don't remember who it came from. But someone pointed out that Djokovic and Federer both won Madrid the year that they got their Roland Garros titles. So, I don't want to read too much into that. But maybe some of what we're seeing is players, when they're, when they're hot, having a good clay court season, not entirely the influence of the altitude
1: Yeah, although you might say the biggest influence on the years in which the the two of them won their Roland Garros titles is that they were years when they didn't have to play Nadal.
0: Well, there is that, sure. That's always the big factor. So with the Sissipas-Nadal matchup, the other difference between Madrid and Roland Garros, besides the, the surface or the conditions itself, is that it's best of five. And this was a match that had a lot of ups and downs. I mentioned the four games at the end of the second set. Um, Nadal looked great then Sitsipas looked a lot stronger at, at times in the first especially at the tail end of the first and at times in the third had they kept playing and, and, and played a best of five match do you think that Nadal would have pulled it out?
1: Uh, I mean I think it Ed, edged Sitsipas because he had the lead but I would have favored Nadal in each of the last two sets um, I mean that even that third set when Sitsipas ended up winning by two breaks, every game was pretty close and that could have been a 6-3 Nadal set instead of a 6-3 Sitsipas set. Um, but, you know, I, I do admire Sitsipas's kind of confidence and um, calm aggression against an all-time great on his best surface like that. And, you know, he was that way with, with Federer at the Australian Open too. So, maybe there's really something to this guy against players who intimidate most of his peers.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that really struck me as well. I mean, he wasn't intimidated at all. It helps that he's he's been on court against Nadal before. He's got the upsets you mentioned against Djokovic and Federer. So it's not totally uncharted territory for him, but it is, it's tough for anybody. I mean, even someone who's faced Nadal many times over the years is going to be intimidated by Nadal on clay. But... Tsitsipas had a lot of weak moments that a lesser player would have let just knock them down. I think he, after he broke the first time in the first set, he got broken back, but then held on and ultimately broke for the set. Uh, some of the the games when he was serving towards the end of the match, he, he lost game points and, and fought back and won it. I think there were two games in a row when he He broke Nadal from forty fifteen and then he held from fifteen forty I might have those backwards, but those uh, th- those are two things that you don't see f- from people playing Nadal on clay very often and I don't know whether that's an intimidation factor or the fact that Nadal is just so steady but Nadal said after the match that that he thought this result was more about him than it was about Sitsipas that he was in, he was uneven. I don't think he used the word uneven, but I'm guessing that's what he was referring to. Would you agree with that 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 it was Nadal that was off his game a little bit, and not Sitsipas that just overpowered him at least enough of the time?
1: I I definitely partly agree with that in that Nadal just wasn't like a lot of shocking errors. We just don't expect from him on clay. I mean, lots of people frame or miss hit balls uh, with the funny bounces on clay. But Nadal, between just having a great eye and great positioning and so much experience and giant racket head, like he just it's, it's not a thing I expect from him. And he also missed a few sitters that we it reminded me of others that he hit. In a way that makes me think he does it very rarely, because I could think of specific moments in specific matches when he had done it. So it was there's such outliers, um, you know, moments when Sitsipas was deep in one corner and also struggling with his footing, and Nadal could have hit it just about anywhere to the other side, short or, or long, and hit into the net, and that's so unlikely with his with his forehand. Um, and he he wasn't able. I think this is about Sitsipas as much as it's about Nadal, but Nadal was not able to repeatedly press the advantage into Tsitsipas' one-handed backhand. I mean, we've seen that pattern against Federer, but also against so many other players, especially with one-handed backhands, that once Rafa's into that cross-court forehand-to-backhand pattern that he just keeps getting harder, deeper, wider balls and forcing his opponents into either shorter, weaker balls or into risky shots that turn into errors. And he didn't get a lot of points that way. And some of it was because of the quality of Tsitsipas's backhand, and some of it was because of the lack of quality from Nadal's forehand. So, yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I don't think he was wrong to say this was about him, but I think a lot of other players would have still lost 6-2, 6-3 against this Nadal.
0: Yeah, and I, I, that's going to be the case for a long time. I think that Nadal on clay is going to be at least a reasonably dominant force uh, for as long as he wants to play. But it seems like there are some cracks in the armor now with these three losses to I mean, different types of players, and I, I would agree. Like you, you mentioned that he didn't, he wasn't able to really press the issue against Tsitsipas's backhand. I'm just thinking about all all these years we've seen Nadal just consistently blast people off the court. I mean, he he manages to to hit shots on clay that really nobody else can, and in these three losses and even in in some of the the victories these last few weeks on clay i haven't really seen that i mean he seems like he's now a really really good player and not an eye popping physics defying player and for most players that would be impressive but for nadal it's a step back i mean does that does that seem right to you carl that Maybe we are seeing a, a lesser version of Rafa that doesn't have some of the tools that he had even just a couple years ago.
1: yeah, I think I think that's part of it, although I also think he's just choosing to deploy them less often. Like one thing that struck me, he actually came to net a fair amount during this match. There were just a lot of points in this match, so a lot of things happened a lot. But he there were a lot of points where I felt like he could have, and at times in recent years, when he'd become more aggressive with that tactic, he would have, especially on a faster hard court, uh, clay court, one where you know Federer and Sitsipas were regularly serving volleying, and I just think he was like backing off a bit. So even when he had deployed a big forehand and gotten an advantage, he wasn't pressing it. And Sitsipas has really good reach and, and pretty good speed and was get, was neutralizing points that Nadal could have put away.
0: So do, do you think that's something, like, I would think that if it is tactical and not purely physical, that's an easier thing to switch back on. Do you think that we're going to see Rafa be able to to tweak things and, and get back in more impressive form these last few weeks of the clay season?
1: I don't know. I, I hope so. I mean, we're coming into two tournaments that typically have been on pretty slow surfaces, uh, where it's often been good enough for him to, to get more into the grinding mode. So I think, you know, what I admire, one of the things I admire about Nadal is how tactically sound he is at, at adjusting during matches too. And that hasn't always been the case, and I can remember memorable losses when it hasn't been the case, but we always remember the losses more because they're so unusual. Um, so he didn't in this case, but I I'm... He has already at times this clay season, and I think he will again. And the next time he runs into trouble, I'll be interested to see how how he adjusts. And yeah, maybe the answer will be he'll try to do things that he no longer can do with the same fierceness and reliability that, that he was doing. But, uh, you know, it's also about how many of these dangerous players is he going to run into in that draw? And yeah, Rome is, Rome is interesting. and We should talk about Rome, but it's really about the French Open for him, and he it's such a big draw that he's going to be far away from the t- the toughest players on clay. And as much as maybe Tsitsipas was more of an outlier, I'd still put him in the top 10 or 15 dangerous players on clay. So if, if he can avoid them and they lose to somebody else, he may end up not having to worry about it more than once in the tournament.
0: Yeah, he may not, but it seems like the, the list is starting to pile up. Like, we've always talked about Fanini as the guy who could threaten him if, the The draw works out that way because you know if they land on opposite sides of the draw, then Fanini not going to make it to the final. We know that, but you know in, in the round of 16, he could be a problem. But if if we start tallying up the list of potential threats to Rafa, then we've got we've got Team Fanini, Sitsipas. Although as you say, Sitsipas is still I mean, we can put him on probation on this list, but he's a factor. We've got Djokovic, obviously. We need to talk about him as well today, but. For now, we're adding him to the list. I think we have to consider Zverev on this list, even if he hasn't done much on on clay so far this year. Uh, Diego Schwartzman is a huge factor, literally and figuratively. So there's there's six guys, only one of which I was joking about. And I mean, once, once you start talking about five dangerous matches in the draw, then I mean. The, don't you think you're, that the luck's about to run out, that he he's going to run into somebody, like a, le- a legit threat in you know, maybe the third or fourth round that could finally end his Roland Garros run?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, I do want to, you know, put the losses in the context of, like, what the question that you asked earlier, of, like, what probability would we give to that matchup again? And even just in Madrid, let alone in... In the, French, in the French Open, best of five, a court, a doll zone, giant center court. Um, you know, I think of the very, pre, the very uh, last match he had played before losing at Tsitsipas. He beat Wawrinka six-one-six-two. And after that, watching that match, you'd say, "Well, Vavrinka, that's not the Vavrinka we know, etc." But here's a Wawrinka who's grown his rank, who's risen in the rankings rapidly uh, recently, who's won the French Open before who's beaten Nadal on clay you might think that is a that is a scary match not a match in which Nadal is never threatened and loses three games so um, e- even if there are two or three matches we circle at the French Open I'd still favor Nadal in maybe almost all of them I and mean, we haven't talked about our champ yet and right now he seems like he might be a better bet but uh, everyone else I, I still think Nadal's the favorite what about you?
0: I think so too and that's the next question I was going to ask like the, the I think this is a few weeks running now I've I've asked what whether Nadal is still the French Open favorite and if he is what needs to happen to make him not the favorite anymore so I'm going to officially move this from an annoying repetitive question to a regular feature of the show which makes the the same repetitive question acceptable so you say he's still the favorite I think he is too and I realized after making the show notes last night, thinking about this this latest upset, that I'm not sure anything can happen to dislodge him as Roland Garros' favorite until somebody wins a match against him at Roland Garros. Like if, if he, I guess, if he had lost to Leonardo Meyer in in that match in Barcelona, if if he loses a similar match in Rome, then yeah, we'll have some serious questions. But. But even then, like we've seen him fail to win a title, lose three. Are they all semifinals? I think they're all semifinals. All three semis,
1: yeah.
0: All three semis. Let's say that I haven't even looked at the, the Rome draw yet. So let, let's say he, he loses his first match in Rome to a qualifier. Uh, at that point, is Djokovic now the Roland Garros favorite? and Djokovic doesn't lose his first match to a, Yeah, let's let's actually let's take the the most extreme scenario we can come up with. Djokovic wins Rome without losing a set. Nadal loses in straight sets to a qualifier, perhaps Casper Ruud, although they're not going to play in the first round, but let's let's say Casper Ruud beats him in straight sets. In that scenario, is Djokovic the rolling yards favorite?
1: Yeah, but I mean, I think it's it's switching two probabilities that are already very close.
0: So, so they're like twenty-one and nineteen, or something, or twenty-five and twenty-three percent to win the title,
1: right? Yeah, that that seems about right. Yeah, probably maybe for me, maybe more than like twenty-one, nineteen.
0: Yeah, that that's that that felt low. I've just looked at so many WTA forecasts lately. Twenty-one's um, high on the WTA these days, but sure. Like, usually, in in my forecasts, the a slam favorite is. In the low 30s so if you have co-favorites then they're probably not that high but maybe these two guys because they're they're so dominant on this surface maybe they they should be like 30 and 29 or something like that um but you still think like most extreme scenario pro Djokovic bad for Nadal then in that scenario Djokovic is the narrow favorite but Nadal is still your close second favorite yes what about you I think Nadal's still my favorite. I, mean, I guess the the one thing that would change that is, a if there was some evidence that Nadal had an injury. Like we, we know he has his nagging issues, but I, I don't think there's a, a major injury factor in these last losses. But I guess there's two ways to look at this. One, if if yes, something does come up where he's he's going into the tournament hobbled. But the other question, this is something that I think you've mentioned a few times in the past. That, if you see a series of unlikely results, then one of your hypotheses has to be that the guy is injured, so it's not that it's not that we're seeing this smooth slight downward trajectory of Nadal finally aging it's more that there might be something nonlinear that happened that. We're expecting to be gradual in the results, but it's not going to be gradual because it's, you know, a bum knee or something. I guess we, we know he has a bum knee. We just don't know how bad it is at any time. But if if there is something like that, then maybe we're not hearing about it. But every surprise loss makes it more likely there's something we're not hearing about. So it's tough to know how to quantify that. We kind of have to use ELO or something like it as our default to interpret all this data that we we can't make sense of especially if we don't have it but I guess that's what I would start to wonder about is if if there's going to be a surprise third or fourth round withdrawal like we saw a few years ago Um, that's the one thing that would cause me to tilt more in Djokovic's favor but I feel like a reasonably healthy Nadal it's it's Nadal at the French Open you don't bet against him i even if Djokovic has performed so much better on clay. I just don't don't see how you could bet against him.
1: Yeah, I your, your point about injury is a really good one. And, you know, I, I think that, as as we also said, these are all semifinals. That's probably influencing me a lot. And he, I think, hadn't dropped a set in any of those three tournaments before reaching... Oh, Meijer. Yes, the Meyer, Barcelona, yep. uh, which was a very close tiebreaker. And the only tiebreaker he played... No, one of two he played...
0: So, but it was a close tie break against Leonardo
1: Meyer. Yep, all fair. I mean, certainly those the results weren't as dominant, all as dominant as that Vavrinka win. Although some of them were quite dominant, but he was winning them. He was um, he was winning three matches in each tournament. Any of those tournaments, he could have pulled out of to rest and, and didn't. He hasn't. Really been reluctant to pull out of things before. He's been a little more reluctant during the clay season, just because you know that's where he makes his his money and his ranking points. But I think there's there's a lot of evidence that this isn't an injury. But I agree that when you see a dip in form, this steep. I mean, in 2015, there were signs that he was in trouble coming into the French Open and that wasn't the year he pulled out but he might as well have for how he looked in his quarterfinal against Djokovic like it just it was not the Nadal we know at the French Open and we we could be heading towards something like that um I I think heading into a 128 draw tournament it doesn't make much impact on the forecast who is favored in the head-to-head but Let's say that Nadal and Djokovic, I think they're pretty much guaranteed at this point to be one and two. They are guaranteed uh, to be one and two at the French Open. Uh, who would you favor if they both reach the final?
0: That's a tough one. You know, again, my gut is just saying you can't bet against Nadal at Roland Garros. It, I think the the numbers are very, very close. I was just looking at my updated ELO ratings after Madrid, and I think Nadal has a slight edge in... In the pure clay ELO, uh, Nadal is up by 50 points, but the way that I forecast matches is a 50-50 blend of the surface-specific ELO and the overall, and if you combine the two, then I think Nadal's edge is five points or something, which rounds down to nothing for ELO purposes. So as far as ELO is concerned, they're they're 50-50. I guess that if if you're considering slow clay then that probably tilts a little bit back towards Nadal because some of Djokovic's points come from winning on a faster surface and some of Nadal's points have been lost from the losing to Tsitsipas so i still have to go Nadal but a you would expect it to be close and and b i would say my confidence is 55 45 at best you know are, are you picking Djokovic in that head to head at this point
1: yeah, but like
0: 52-48. Really cool. Okay, so so if we average our forecasts, <laughs> then Nadal is the clear favorite at fifty one and a half. Is that right?
1: Yeah, write him in the books. 2019 French Open champion.
0: And then 48.5% of the print run of this book will have Djokovic as...
1: Exactly. The... And we'll yeah. burn the other half. We We burn books here.
0: Yay. Okay. Learn something new every day. So... We've been talking about Djokovic a lot as sort of the Nadal foil, but I think he deserves a little more than that this week. He did win the Madrid Masters. He was he wasn't exactly dominant in, in beating Team into tiebreaks in the semifinal, but he he did that. He he beat Sitsapas pretty easily in the final. So it's his thirty third Masters title, which ties him with Nadal as the the lead with the lead in Masters titles. Do you think that Djokovic will retire with the most, at least com- I mean, compared to Rafa and I guess everyone else who will be around when Djokovic retires?
1: Yeah, I guess I'd give him the slight edge over Rafa. I mean, it's funny, like, just being two of the three clay masters into the clay season and Djokovic having an edge over Nadal is like big advantage Djokovic because if he can get through the season tied with him overall, and having caught up, then, you know, he feasts on the, the remaining Masters, and has a better shot at the the first two next year, and if we have to wait a full year for the next cycle when Nadal is the favorite at a Masters, then, you know, we, we never know how much more Nadal we're going to get, so, um, yeah, slight advantage Djokovic there, probably, um, if, we, if we expect that, let's say we say that they're going to retire around the same time, or Djokovic a year later, because he's a year younger, uh, I'd probably give him sixty-something percent chance of having the most when he retires. I mean, Federer is so far behind the two at this point that he doesn't have a realistic chance of catching up to either one.
0: Yeah, I think I'd be even more aggressive because, as you point out, the the surface balance it really works in Djokovic's favor. I mean, it's it's a little su- surprising/slash impressive in terms of of Rafa's performance that they are still tied because they've. I guess Djokovic has had to contend with Federer at all of these ma- at all the hard court Masters events and and Murray as well on their better surfaces, but you know, Rafa has had to rely heavily on just cleaning up at the clay court events. Um, but yeah, as you point out, there's there's this edge since we're talking about this halfway through the season. There's a a lot more uh, a lot more hard court events in whatever time frame you pick, whether it's six months or a year or even two years. And yeah, you'd expect Djokovic to stick around as long as Nadal, possibly more, possibly even more than the one-year age difference. So, so yeah, it seems pretty likely that Djokovic ends up on top as long as he doesn't, you know, d- disappear again as we saw a couple of years ago. Yes, that's always the possibility with either of these guys, but particularly with Djokovic since we've we've seen him just fall off the face of the tennis planet.
1: Just to give a. Um context to why Nadal is going to really struggle to make up any ground off of clay he's won one masters title on a hard court since the start of the 2014 season
0: and that so was Canada last year exactly yeah over sitzipas right yep yeah um, that was I, I was already with a what I thought was going to be a super cool stat because Sitsipas had a uh, had the lottery match win against Nadal here in Madrid, so he he won fewer than 50% of points. The match against Federer, he won more than 50% of points in Australia, but his dominance ratio was below one. And I was remembering the Zverev and Anderson matches from Toronto that were also dominance ratios below one. I think both of those were under 50% of points won as well. I got those confused with the Djokovic match, and I was thinking, not only has this guy beaten Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, but he's beaten them all with sub-one dominance ratios. But that's not quite the case. Only Federer at all. He he had. Jeff, a
1: I went through that same cycle early in the episode.
0: <laughs> all right. So your two but, leading propon- proponents of dominance ratio are, are misusing it in our memories.
1: <laughs> we, we we're remembering it to to reinforce narratives that, that we want. But you know, just to say that he's won close matches against all three. Who who does that um, remind you of among young players? Nick Kurios. Nick Kurios, yeah. Is Sissipasa's clutches? I, I guess he didn't show up as nearly an outlier as Kyrgios did in your recent analyses in terms of st- stepping it up when the points matter more. But um, he seems to at least have a knack for doing that occasionally in big matches.
0: Yeah, he does. And I, I don't think I looked at him at all. I, I think we discussed this on a previous episode, but the the analysis I did of, of Kyrgios looking at his performance at various point scores is... It was so computationally intensive that I didn't run it for everybody. So I should do that for Sitsipas. I wouldn't be surprised if it if it turns up a little bit just based on these few results. Uh, I do want to go back to Djokovic a little bit more, but since we're back on Sitsipas in the updated Elo ratings, he gets a huge boost from beating Nadal on clay, as one should. And as a result of that, he's up to number five in the overall ATP ELO ratings. Just looks like he's all of 3.7 points ahead of Daniel Medvedev. So not overwhelming, but still sneaks into the top five. That puts him ahead of guys like not only Medvedev, but Nishikori, Zverev, um, Del Potro, Chilich. I, mean, I guess that, that's most of the top guys these days. Do you, do you buy that that Tsitsipas is now a, a top five level player?
1: Well, I think when we've talked about him before and where to rank him, I've given the caveat of, well, some of his big wins, some of the ones that got him these points, are were really close, so I'm not sure how predictive they are. Um, but he keeps, he keeps winning big matches, so it's starting to make a little more sense to me. Um, he is a threat on at least two surfaces. We haven't seen much of him on grass. And... You know, they're big drop-offs from, from the very top, so it is pretty tight um, right around him. And, yeah, I think, I think it's credible. I mean, he's definitely earned the top ten, and once you're in the top ten, you're pretty close to the top five.
0: Yeah, and we are kind of in flux in that group behind the big 3 according to Elo anyway team is the clear number 4 but after that it's it's a pretty tight cluster with Tsitsipas Medvedev Nishikori, Zverev somehow Roberto Bautista Agu he's number 9 I I don't know where that came from except I guess beating Djokovic probably helped in January uh but we we saw in Madrid that Tsitsipas beats Zverev that was a, an, another quality match this week we've touched on Zverev a few times in the last few weeks and he's, we're kind of waiting for him to reassert himself, but he has failed to do that. And this is, this is a match that I would say he should have won against Tsitsipas in Madrid. At this point, would you, do you think it's right to put Tsitsipas ahead of Zverev in the rankings?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think Zverev's 2019 has not been good. It's been a lot worse than his 2018 um, he doesn't really have, you know, like a, a big win. Uh, he he ended last year in such a high note that it, it's surprising, and we shouldn't forget that. That wasn't that long ago. It's certainly being factored into the ratings, but he's pretty much done nothing but fall since then. Um, he he, I mean, if we're talking about players who might have an injury we don't know about, Zverev should come up just based on how disappointing and weird his results have been this year.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it has been a surprise and like you say, a disappointment. So maybe he'll turn that around. He's won Rome before. Maybe he'll do it again this year, but yeah, I feel like we, we, I keep saying we're going to talk about Djokovic and we end up segueing back to something else. Um, uh, huge week for him. I mean, I'm not sure what else to say besides the fact that he's, he's, he's looking good. I mean, do you think that he's he's a lot more vulnerable on the slower clay than he is in Madrid, where he pretty much cleared the slate against everybody he faced? No, not necessarily. He's done well at
1: Rome and the French Open before, so he's won Monte Carlo. Um, I think he's he's really smart about playing, playing on slow clay and, and adjust his game, um, as much as it probably pains him to step back a little bit. Um, and he still manages to, to be aggressive. Uh, you know, I think in terms of what else there is to say, like, I think it's a, a really big result for him just in that he hasn't been particularly, he he's been good, but not great and far from dominant in these best of three tournaments for quite a while. So, um, that's, that's a pretty big breakthrough. He's also shown that it doesn't, matter them. I mean, he. you mentioned Batista Agut beat him recently, he beat him twice recently, and one of them was Djokovic's last match going into the Australian Open, and he was dominant at the Australian Open, so he, he hasn't looked like Djokovic has for maybe the last seven years at best of three tournaments, but um, still been, you know, great enough at the slams to win the last three and be heading into the French with a chance to win four in a row for the second time in his career, um, but so that made Madrid really turn things around for him between between the major tournaments.
0: Yeah, I, that is a, a narrative I'd kind of forgotten about. It's because there's been so much flux with title winners and, and general upset frequency since the Australian Open, it's easy to forget that he does hold those other three slams. He's got a huge lead in in the official rankings in terms of points. Uh, he's not quite up to his, his career peak in ATP ranking points, but he's... He's over 14,000, which is really rare. Uh, I think he was, and it's really fallen off because of
1: not getting any points at most of these events.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he's at 11-something now. Uh, oh, he is. 12-something okay. after winning Madrid. And 12-something is still, like, that's territory that not very many people have reached. He's way out
1: in front. On the other hand, like, you know, if he loses Wimbledon and one of his top rivals wins it, then... Um, that that narrows quite a bit
0: true yeah there will be a lot of points at stake in believe, well, in just the next two months or so with with wimbledon falling under that umbrella um i guess there are a lot of points at stake in these masters events but it feels like that things really ramp up once we get to the the two slams back to back in the early summer so lots to watch for in rome and one more guy who we haven't really talked about yet is Roger Federer. And he played Madrid. We talked about it a couple times in previous episodes. Didn't expect a lot from him going into Madrid, but got to the quarterfinals, played a really tight match against Dominic Team. I think, did he have match points? He had a few match
1: points in the second set tiebreaker, yeah. In fact, it was so close that in our show notes, you have Fed Defeat's
0: team. <laughs> and those are show notes that I wrote yesterday, so I have no excuse whatsoever. Um, it's just except, a prediction you're making for the French. Yeah, I think it's just because the, the D and the V on my keyboards are very close to each other. Fair. No, I'm, not, I'm not sure. So, so yeah, he defeated team in the first set and a smattering of games after that. So maybe because he played so well, he decided to enter Rome, and that was not on the schedule. I mean, it, the way that the ATP entries work... The top players are automatically entered in Masters events, whether they intend to play or not. That's up to them to withdraw. Um, So he was on the list. It was just expected he would do the formal withdrawal at some point. I think Demir Zummer was the guy who was on the bubble. He's kind of waiting, fingers crossed, that Federer would pull out. But he didn't, and Zummer had to play qualifying. I'm not even sure whether he succeeded in qualifying. But I'm guessing that's not as interesting to most people as Federer himself. So Federer is going to play Rome. Do you expect much from him here, having seen him play well in Madrid?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would favor him against... We were talking about these cluster of players, maybe a growing cluster who can threaten Nadal on clay, and most of them I would favor against Federer on clay. But he sh- he looked like he could beat just about everyone else. Uh, I'm not saying he definitely would, but uh, he looked a lot more comfortable and impressive than i expected uh, i i thought this was kind of like what the hell let's see but man he had match point against team to get to the semis who knows um team was clearly the better player overall in that match by the way statistically but you know if federer closed it out in two we would not have known what would have happened in the third set and he was serving volleying he was he was moving comfortably uh, he was putting a little more loop on his shots. He was defending his backhand pretty well. Um, he was he was certainly doing it conducive to a faster clay court, as we keep saying. But yeah, I, I still think he's going to be the better player against the kinds of opponents he should expect in the first couple of rounds in Rome. And um, that makes me think he has a shot of at least maybe reaching the quarterfinals in, in Paris, and we'll see what the draw looks like.
0: Yeah, because he's going to have the advantage of quite a high seed. So yeah. I he'll think he will be a three think, seed almost definitely. Yeah, so he'll be a three seed. I think Sitsipas is now is he gonna be top eight? So so that takes out one wild card you could face before the quarters. So there just aren't aside from somebody like Finini, there aren't a lot of really dangerous guys. I guess you always have to be concerned about running into Isner or Kyrgios on a on a good day, or maybe Vavrinka's a threat outside that group. But,
1: yeah, I mean, if I uh, scroll the rankings, I'd say it's Fonini, Medvedev, uh, Chechenato, uh, Pella... Chechenato. Che- Chechenato. Say it again? Chechenato. Chechenato. The the letters are reversed from the sounds. It's it's. I, I just don't speak Italian. Uh, Pella, those are probably... And then Schwartzman, as we, we keep remember- remembering, and Vavrinka and Oger Aliasim, if we think they're threats, Lajevic, Jarrett, these probably all are guys we'd favor Federer against. I don't know about Fonini and Medvedev, but yeah, you're right. Like outside of the guys he wouldn't have to face before the quarterfinals, he's going to be favored against almost everyone.
0: Yeah, it will be really interesting to see. I think in the early rounds, uh, I'll be a lot more interested in Federer's results than Djokovic and Nadal because we do expect, though, Djokovic and Nadal to just plow through the early rounds in Roland Garros although maybe we have a little bit more reason to pay attention to, to Nadal and how he fares early this time. But um, but yeah, Federer could, could really be a threat. Um, so I, I, we only have about 20 minutes left here, and I do want to talk about the, the women as well. But before we get back to the, the Madrid results, one other name names, since we're talking about people going into Rome, is Serena Williams, who we haven't seen on court. She hasn't played since the Australian Open, has she? Or did she play in Indian Wells? I'm... I think in both Indian Wells and Miami, she won a match and then either retired or withdrew. Exactly. Yes. That's right. So so we saw her a couple months ago. Haven't seen her since. Haven't seen her on clay, but she is playing Rome. And I, I've been going back through some old premier finals to add those to the match charting project and, and watched three of her finals, I think from 2012 through 2014, one in Madrid and two in Rome. And... I was really struck by how she doesn't have to really change her game for for clay. I think she's had more success later in her career because she got more comfortable on clay, but it didn't really mean changing tactics. It just meant not struggling to deal with the surface. And I mean, she was varying degrees of dominant in those matches that I was going back through and charting. And I mean, I think you'd have to see her as. Probably not the favorite, but a major factor in this tournament. I mean, do you agree with that, Carl?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and probably someone we're going to watch more than just about everyone else.
0: You mean as we'll be more interested in watching her matches? Yeah, exactly. I mean, besides Simona Hallop and Arena Sabalenka and Monica Neglescu, sure. And Kiki Burton's. And Kiki Burton's. Yes, good segue. So the Madrid women's final was Kiki Burton's against Simone Halep. I think Burton made the final last year. Uh, has really just steadily improved since. It's really impressive how she's how she's climbed the rankings now. She won Cincinnati last summer. I, mean, I remember a year two years ago, we were talking about her as sort of a dark horse threat on clay. Um, not only has she really emerged performing well on clay, but also has improved her hardcore game as well. But this is, aside from all that, this is another step forward. Her first premier mandatory title, beating Halop maybe not easily, but it, it wasn't a super close match. Um, I mean, it, should we start talking about Kiki Bertens as a Roland Garros favorite?
1: A favorite?
0: Um... Well, I guess a fa- I don't know what a favorite means. I'm asking you a uh, overly vague question so you can say interesting things that I have not immediately prompted
1: (laughs) I'll try (laughs) Um, yeah I mean I think she's probably uh, the WTA rankings are so tight as always Um, recency bias sure she's one of the five favorites Um, maybe maybe even higher than that I mean, it, it is, yeah, It there, there's like the constant push and pull in my head with the WTA going into a slam of, do we care about past slam results only or especially, even though slams are also played best of three? Um. So, you know, she had a really, really good run in Madrid. So recency bias, it, it maybe feels fair here. Like she beat, let's see three slam champs, uh, two of whom had won the French Open. No, four slam champs, two of whom had won the French Open, and then another had made a French Open final. Uh, Three players in the top ten. I mean, just like a really good week in which he won all six of her matches in straight sets. So maybe just from that week, I mean, we've talked before about sort of great weeks on the WTA, and and Bencic has had a couple. Uh, This seems like it's got to be one of the one of the great weeks of the last couple of years in WTA.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think they said on the broadcast, this is the first time that, that a woman has won Madrid without dropping a set that only covers so much because it hasn't existed as a top level tournament for that long. But still, even if it's only, I don't know, seven, I'm not sure how far it goes back as a, as a clay court tournament this time of year, but still it's, it's quite impressive. Um, if if you're saying top five favorites, I guess we have to put Simona in the conversation. Definitely Petra is one of the favorites. Who else is top five with Simona, Petra, Kiki?
1: <laughs> you know, Ilo still really likes Muguruza. I guess his past clay results are, are still boosting her, but I, she's not in my top five. Um, yeah, it's kind of a toss-up after that. I mean, is up there.
0: Uh, and Spitalina, I don't think we have a lot to say about Spitalina at this point. She, she lost her first-round match in Madrid to Pauline Parmentier, but she is the defending champion in Rome, and if she backs that up, then I, she goes into Roland Garros' top-five favorite, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to make of Sloane Stephens right now. She's definitely slumping, but she uh, she did all right in Madrid, and she she did reach the French Open final, so maybe she's my fifth.
0: I don't know. Yeah, 90% of Sloane Stevens' career, we could have said she looks like she's slumping, but <laughs> she's ended up with some pretty good results coming out of those slumps. That's the difficult part, is predicting when that will happen. Um, one thing I, I noticed with, with Kiki Burton's thinking back to, I think it was just last week, we were talking about Joanna Conta making the robot final. is uh, not someone you really talk about on clay too much, but we were discussing how, how maybe we, we got... We and or the British press got too excited about her as a late bloomer, climbing the rankings uh, later than most players do. And she and Kiki Bertens are almost exactly the same age. Kanta is six months older. And they're... I don't want to make this too tight of a comparison because there's tons of differences. But Bertens is similarly a late bloomer. She didn't break into the top 50 until about three years ago. Just broke into the top 10 last fall so here she is as a 27 year old and we're talking about her as a favorite i mean do you think that i mean we were talking about Kanta in the context of her fall from being a top 10 player and a consistent and as a consistent favorite at these types of events do you think that that kiki Bertens is 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 less likely to to suffer the kind of downswing that we've seen from joanna Conta? Um, maybe, maybe her game being somewhat less reliant
1: on power is, is more conducive to aging. She's still a very powerful player, but I guess I'm thinking of the touch of her drop shots.
0: Um, and she doesn't, she she is a, she's a very powerful player, but she, she doesn't, she's not like a top of the charts, aggressive go for broke type player. Like she, right. She hits hard in the direction of the corners. She doesn't hit hard right onto the corners.
1: Yeah, and I guess I've been inconsistent about which style I think ages better, but. Um, and and I'm, I may be, uh, you know, assuming that there's something stylistic about Kanta's slump um, when, when there might not be at all. Uh, another thing that maybe favors Burton's here is just that she has shown more results on, on hard and clay. Like she's pretty consistent. And um that gives her more more opportunities to have big weeks. Um but I don't know. I mean predicting aging curves, you know, it'd be it'd be interesting to like put our hands over aging curves of players without their names and, and guess what, what's gonna happen next and we can get all the stats on them we want. And my guess is we still wouldn't have been very good.
0: Yeah, I I, I think you're right about that. And maybe that's a feature we should bring back to the show. We did a couple where I I described a player without telling you who it was, and and let you guess where they ended up a year or two down the line, or who it was, things like that. And it's not an easy task; <laughs> it's really not. So I I think when we when we try to do it, talking about a player like Connor Burton's, we're we're bringing in a lot of a lot of extra stuff that isn't necessarily useful for forecasting. Um, whatever our our biases are about that player or that type of player or how much we've watched that player lately in the case of Kiki Bertens. So it's 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 tough. You mentioned Belinda Bencic and her great week. I think that was in Dubai, maybe Doha a few months ago. And Bencic won a set against Simona Halep. She was the only one to do so before the final against Bertens. So Bencic won the set against Halep. Ashley Barty played two close sets against Simona Halep. And maybe this is getting a little a little circular because Simona Halep might not have been playing great this week since she ended up losing in the final but Barty and Benchich are two people we've talked about recently as players playing really well on hard courts whose games haven't in the past translated that well to clay would you, do you think that these two results are should make us a little more optimistic about Barty and Benchich on clay courts
1: yeah i'd separate the two i think i'm more optimistic about Bencic, both because she made the semis, beating number one Osaka along the way. Granted, Osaka we didn't even mention as one of the top five clay contenders, so maybe not as big a win as it looks. But also, you know, this was the fourth clay event that Benchich had played. I mean, she was playing basically every week since the start of the clay season, and that stretch included a quarterfinal against in Charleston and a, a close loss to the in Stuttgart. So pretty good um, start to the clay season, but especially like a real commitment to the clay season and getting a lot of matches in ahead of the French open. And, you know, Barty had Madrid was her debut. It was a really good debut, really strong um, in getting to that quarterfinal, playing how close, um, but just less, less so far to show on clay and less, less time spent on it.
0: One point that the commentators made during the Barty Hallett match is that we probably should give Ashley Barty a little bit more leeway because she played her Fed Cup tie a couple of weeks ago in Australia. So she might still be, i mean, probably not right now, but maybe in the beginning of the Madrid week, she might have still been dealing with jet lag from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Fed Cup and Davis Cup format, a traditional format for many things... Um, <laughs> making top players go play on hard courts in Australia in late April is is cruel, and it's an incredible. I mean, that was that was an incredible tie with great players, so it shows their commitment to the to the event. But it's it's probably at quite a bit of personal cost, as you point out.
0: Yeah, and you got to feel especially bad for the Belarusians because it's one thing for the Australians to go play a home tie, as uh, they get to go home, or at least they get to go to their home country. Uh, They've chosen, or at least their captain has chosen to go there. But the Belarusians probably would have preferred mostly anything else other than a trip to Australia right before the clay court season started. So like you say, credit to them for making the trip. But yeah, it's a a bit of a strike against the the Fed Cup system, the home-and-home system. Um, Let's see. So... We've got our favorites going into Roland Garros. Rome's going to be interesting to see if Fidelina is able to recapture some of the form that has worked for her so well at that event in the past. You added one note that uh, we've got to talk about in the official Tennis Abstract podcast, Doubles Ghetto, um, otherwise known as The Last Five to Seven Minutes. So Marco Cecchinato, um is involved in a pretty impressive losing streak. 16 sets lost in a row with five different partners. And do I have this right? None of them even got past
1: 6-4? That's right.
0: So, pretty futile stuff. I, I wrote something, I think it was in 2016, maybe early 2017, about Albert Ramos. Um, he had a really equally impressive doubles losing streak he lost 21 in a row I'm actually not sure, maybe he lost more but when I wrote it, he was up to 21 losses in a row um, and we have to as an aside, give our thanks to Petr Vetz, the friend of the podcast who is doing a great job keeping up with these records on the the double circuit um, this isn't something that the commentators talk about very much it doesn't show up on, on tennis.com very much so, Ramos and Chechenado kind of fit the same mold. They're they're clay court specialists. Pretty, I, mean, I think, pretty weak serves in both cases. So, not the sort of thing you'd normally associate with doubles prowess. Do you think that's what's going on? The, their game style just doesn't really work in doubles.
1: Maybe. I mean, there, some of the double specialists who have had a lot of success, you can be described as fitting that mold. Like I'm thinking of Mark Lopez, certainly going to be the weakest server on court in most configurations and doesn't come to net as the server, although he's got a really good net game, but he is such a smart doubles player with so good with his ground strokes and with his, with his net game. Um, so I, it's not like matches featuring Jackie Nato, which are basically always first round matches by definition are are televised much so I, I can't say much but i'm guessing he's just not good at the sh- the shots that doubles prizes more than singles um you know in some cases i would say well he's there's something fishy going on here but it's hard to imagine anyone ever betting on him and <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah He's not, and he's not like, the other thing is a lot of singles players will enter doubles draws and then retire, withdraw, whatever, and maybe if he won a couple, he would do that. But he's playing out these matches, so he's trying to get something out of them. You know, the other possibility is, hey, it's like free practice against professional tennis players. I can, like, try different stuff and see how it goes. So that wouldn't be such a dumb strategy for a singles player playing doubles, but I don't know if that's what's going on.
0: Yeah. uh, Any enterprising journalists out there on site, I'd love to hear more about why these guys are playing doubles. You suggest one good reason, just having more match practice. Another one is simply the prize money. I mean, if you can get into the draw and you can play one match and take home another few thousand euro, then uh, I would take that job. I would probably lose even faster uh, being not a professional tennis player or very good at doubles, but it's not a bad deal. So maybe there's something there it's always possible he really thinks he could be better and he's he's willing to give it a try i'm not sure but i'd love to hear that from from their perspective and that's a question i don't think the press is asking very often
1: i want to also hear about why their partners are playing with them that's that was sort of the joke with ramos too like who who are these guys who keep willingly signing up for the first round loss
0: and that's something that I first started wondering about when we were talking about David Morero a few years ago when he got in some he got in some hot water first because there was suspicious betting movement on one of his mixed doubles matches in Australia, and then he got in hot water because he responded to that by saying he wasn't throwing the match he just felt bad hitting hard against women or something like that so he went from being a possible match fixer to a probable sexist, and i 'm not sure which is worse in the current um, current climate. Um, I think he... the two weren't mutually exclusive well there... <laughs> that's true too yeah he he could be both, but in that case, he was often playing with quality partners like I guess no one's really looking at mixed double stats since i don 't really know where you'd even look for mixed double stats but at least it seems like these these clay court guys who aren't good at doubles they they do seem to pair up with each other like not always but Ramos had many of his matches with Paolo Lorenzi who had lost a lot of matches with other partners as well uh, but with mixed doubles it's so often just a a single pairing or a pairing for a couple of slams that seems like a lot of women were wasting a good mixed doubles opportunity to play with this guy who was good at men's doubles but maybe never really had a chance in mixed doubles because the, the results did show he was extremely bad. So you wonder how how much the, the pairings are done intelligently or if it's just players who they got to get in somehow and auto has a high enough singles ranking that he could be their ticket. Maybe that's maybe it's just their only option. So Anything else, Carl? We've got a couple minutes left, but any, anything going into Rome that we should mention before signing off? Well, I I, I found
1: interesting your note toward the bottom about the, the format, and we might have even discussed that on this podcast at some point, that the, both Madrid and Rome were talking about expanding to 96-player draws in singles on the men's and women's sides and apparently have not... Um, Maybe we don't have much to say about it. I, I looked, and I, I'm guessing you looked too, and there isn't much out there, but it does seem like maybe players were opposed to the idea.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. I, I would like to hear more of an official reason why it didn't happen or when it was decided because, yeah, I, I did do a bit of research and confirmed that in in 2017 there was an announcement that starting this year, in 2019, Madrid and Rome would both be two-week 96-player events there weren't a lot of details about what would happen to the schedule, like if, if there'd be tournaments that would go away or the clay season would start sooner. I guess it can't start much sooner because of Miami, but the, there weren't as many details as you would expect there to be. But now, here we are in 2019, obviously it hasn't happened. I I believe there's an official ATP schedule out for next year, 2020, and... Madrid and Rome remain one-week events on that schedule as well. So it seems like it's just been consigned to the dustbin of history, and maybe we'll never hear an official statement about it. I suspect that maybe the players were were opposed, but I think the players like the multi-week events. I think the bigger problem might have been the tournaments that would have been axed. That's one of the ongoing problems with changing anything on the ATP or WTA schedule is... That whatever you want to add, whatever you want to change or extend, it costs somebody else their their tournament license or, or whatever it is that they they've bought from the ATP. So these things can end up in court, uh, end up dragging on for a long time. It might have just been easier to leave things with the status quo. But it would have been interesting to see how it turned out if had it gone a different way. It's a zero sum game. Yeah, there's only so many weeks on the calendar, and even fewer weeks that you can expect the big names to show up.
1: I guess so. they could keep they could keep them at one week by just having um, the low the unseated players having to play their first and second round opponents simultaneously, um, just to make it even more unfair for the the guys without buys.
0: Well, that sounds that sounds like a joke. It had the cadence of a joke, um, but I wonder if if that's a possible solution. The way that the the WTA has added 125K tournaments to the second weeks of slams, and that's more similar to a challenger. I mean, the, the same money as a challenger, often the same type of field, but those tournaments often get some of the best challenger fields and, and fields that are comparable to some of the weakest 250s or internationals. And I wonder if that's a solution. If you... If you start the 96 draws, let's say Wednesday or something, then a lot of players are out by Sunday or Monday. And if you are a little bit flexible with who can enter and and when, then you could have a really quality 250 or WTA International the second week of of a 96 draw. The loser's Uh, bracket. Basically, yeah. And... The, the losers... I mean, it's a consolation bracket taking all the second or even third round losers is going to be really good compared yeah. to some of the events at the same prize money level. So anyone from ATP or WTA listening, that's, that's my tentative recommendation. I'd love to see that. Always in favor of more tennis, even if it's 125Ks. Just archive the matches. Anyone from WTA listening... It's great that you archive all the matches on WTA TV. It is not great that they disappear after three days. It is especially not great that you don't archive any matches from 125Ks. It's great that you stream them, but I'm often not awake or interested at the time that a 125K final is happening in China. So please archive them. It would be great. And thanks for listening. So Carl, as always, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks everyone for listening. Enjoy the Rome Masters and you can expect another episode around this time next week. See you then.